Hello, and welcome to episode 234 of Retro Encounter, RPG Fan's weekly podcast of many topics. today to talk about Castlevania, but not the games, the animated series. And I am joined today by three other panelists, starting with Patrick Gann. Hello, everyone. And then Alana Higgs. Hi. And Michael Solosi. Hello. Uh, so we uh, just finished, I, I just finished, uh, watching season three of Castlevania, the animated series. Uh, spoiler alert, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> So it, it started on television uh, a couple of years ago, um, and I actually think it originally was planned to be an animated movie, and then they realized that they had maybe uh, more content than that. Um, and then so they turned the first season into four episodes, and the second season into eight, and then the most recent one was ten. So they keep expanding with every season. Um, and uh, it's loosely based, uh, at least the first uh, season is lo- and two, first two seasons are loosely based on Castlevania three. Um, and that season, season two, and then the most recent season are also loosely based and have some inspirations from um, Curse of Darkness, which was a PS2 game. I'm not sure when that was released. I'm sure one of you does. 2004 or oh. 5, I want to say. Yeah, it was definitely it, the mid 2000s. Yeah, mid 2000s, okay. a little bit late in the PS2 life cycle. I don't know the exact year. I, I, I played um, through. A significant part of it, but never finished it. And that's a that's an Iga one as well, right? Yeah, it had um, mm-hmm. yeah, both Lament of Innocence and Curse of Darkness had um, uh, Koji Igarashi listed as an exec producer. I don't know how involved in development he was because I mean, I, I never we never know, but uh, it, it is an Iga yeah. game for sure. Okay. Um, and one of the things that I personally find most interesting about it um, is while it takes inspirations uh, from. Uh, source material, certainly. Two things uh, is, first of all, the guy who runs the show, a guy named Warren Ellis, has actually never played a Castlevania game, ever. Um, <laughs> apparently, everything he knows about it is from reading wikis, and he's got a couple people on staff who are, like, hardcore Castlevania fans. Um, and when someone asked him about it in an interview, he basically said, like, oh, I don't have any way to play it. And for the record, he does. Um, <laughs> which I think is funny. Um, but the other thing is, like, it's, it's a very, I think partially as a result of that, it's a very loose adaptation. So I, I personally, at least my own history with the Castlevania series, is I've played Symphony of the Night, and that's basically it. Um, but I don't really feel like it has impacted my enjoyment of this series too much. So I guess I'll ask you guys, um, what are your histories sort of with the Castlevania series, and what um, inspirations do you guys see here? When I was a wee lad, my parents would not let me play Castlevania because it was <laughs> demonic and I was a good little church boy, and I'm still a good little church boy, but I really like Castlevania too. Not actually Castlevania too, but Castlevania also. Of all the early ones to zero in on, Simon's Quest would not be my choice. Yeah, <laughs> no, um, yeah, I I played the games, you know, since their inception, and what I would say generally about what made the Netflix castlevania series appeal to me is that not only since ego left but even before that you know not too terribly far after um aria of sorrow and dawn of sorrow i just was totally losing interest in 
a lot of sort of boilerplate repeated story kind of stuff and the various reboots they attempted like lord of shadows like totally not doing it for me um bringing back really important classic characters from what is arguably you know um the most interesting from the early games which is castlevania 3 and using trevor and sypha and alucard as sort of a a baseline and then using the story of alucard's parents to sort of frame everything around make that the start of the story that was so much more interesting than any of the games had done in fact i would argue the the best part of symphony of the night is is the part where alucard goes and you see that vision of his mom being crucified um and i think he has Mm -hmm. to fight a succubus after that but gosh like that was so intense when i was a teenager seeing seeing that scene and getting this sense for like his human mother and like the conflict there but digging into the sorrow that existed for dracula was never really explored in the games and so i feel like that first season where they established that i was like i was hooked immediately (laughs) i was i don't want to say a late comer to castlevania but i definitely didn't play any of them until like the mid 2000s um maybe in a part because of my age but also because most of the classics had already been and gone by the time I was of an age of playing games like that. So, I mean, I did actually start with Super Castlevania 4 um, on the virtual console and then picked up a couple of the DS games afterwards. So I played some of the later... I played the schlocky anime era, as everybody loves to talk about the terrible artwork that they used when they've tried to reinvent the series a little bit. But I love those games anyway, even if they have the weak, <laughs> the worst art style. You cannot replace that art at all. Why would you do it with something that's terrible? But anyway, um, yeah, um, I'm uh, now a dedicated Castlevania fan. I've played most... I've probably a couple of the Game Boy games... Curse of Darkness, funnily enough, is one of the ones I haven't played. Um, yeah, one of the I think it's the only 3D one I haven't played. I haven't beaten any of the 3D ones, so I must say. But the series, when the series was announced, I was really skeptical. I thought there's no way you can make a TV show out of this. Like, there's there's a story like to each game, and obviously there's the Belmont lineage. But what what can you do with it? And right. like Pat honed in on, like the series immediately picks up on Dracula's kind of sorrow and the suffering he goes through with his wife's death and his hatred of humans. And it does a really good job of humanizing and bringing all these characters to life. And I think that the show is pretty exemplar at creating extremely deep characters and extremely fun characters as well. Like Castlevania has the kind of iconic Belmonts or the Morrises or Soma Cruz or Dracula is iconic just for being Dracula and you've got Death and Shaft. You've got all these characters and they're like one template, one note. But the show manages to evolve all of these like figureheads and all of these important names into something that's more three-dimensional and far more interesting, more so than I could ever imagine. It's like if I made, I don't know, it's like this is kind of how I imagine Castlevania is playing out because there's not really many cutscenes, not much story in any of the 2D ones. And this is a really, really good way of like evolving it. And I think that Ellis not actually having played any of the games is beneficial because me having played most of them and going, oh, you can't make a TV show out of this. And then you've got someone coming in from the outside and going, well, hang on a minute, we can do this. And he has done a really good job of it, I think. So, and I agree, season three is really, really good. And I'm excited to gush about it again. What about you, Mike? 
Right. So uh, I started playing the Castlevania games from an early age when I was renting NES games uh, based on how cool their covers were most of the time. And I played, I think, I think just Castlevania 1 and 2 um, when I was very young in the in the age, I don't know, 8, eight to 10 range. And then uh, several Castlevania games after that, I definitely played um, – Super Castlevania 4 during the my SNES heyday, and uh, uh, I didn't play Bloodlines until I was emulating Genesis games in the early 2000s. But I, I played many of them over the years, got really, really into Castlevania Symphony of the Night when I first played it around, uh, probably around 2000 or so, and then played all of the 2D um, Egovania RPG-style ones, basically as they came out, and a couple of the 3D ones, but the only one I finished was Lament of Innocence for the PS2. So I'm a big fan of the games. Uh, I like the the gothic action, the uh, how they sort of try to keep to a uh, keep to a kind of style, but have the gameplay be sometimes wildly different between games that are even just a year or two apart from each other. And uh, I, I sort of prefer the the older illustrated art style. But uh, when they went from sort of gothic to anime, from Aria of Son of Sorrow to Dawn of Sorrow. I did not enjoy the change, but uh, <laughs> but, 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 I, but but I still enjoyed a lot of the new games. Like, I, I still think that um, Order of Ecclesia is the best Castlevania game of the 2000s. Yeah, that uses the old art style as well, though. Little, so. Yeah, they sort of go in between. They, they go a yeah. little bit back to the old art style, uh, but uh, but Portrait of Ruin and um, and Dawn of Sorrow definitely were anime as hell in that way. But so I'm a longtime Castlevania fan, and when I heard that I was an anim- there was a, an animated series coming out of it, I'm like, okay, that's interesting. And if they're going to have Castlevania three, that makes sense. I didn't play three until um, until many years after the it's like NES time. And I thought that was a that was a pretty logical choice because there's multiple characters, but otherwise it's a classical it's a sort of a classic Castlevania story. And I was really impressed with that first season. With each new season, they seem to be expanding the world and characters, all the while using Castlevania touchstones and concepts like Belmont family, uh, Dracula is this is this ancient famous powerful vampire, uh, and they they basically tell their own story and create their own setting that they want to create while hitting Castlevania flags and and uh, and Castlevania moments but without recreating anything wholesale or being too married to canon or lore yeah. and uh and so that you know uh gives a really creative person like Warren Ellis uh freedom to tell the story he wants and it turns out he's an awesome storyteller and uh this is a it's a really really cool production in general and I thought that each season was probably better than the last uh-huh Oh, I agree with that. I mean, I think it's interesting for me because I, you know, reading about it, um, you know, just in preparation for this, I, I was like, oh, that, this was a reference to that. And that was a reference to this other thing. And I think that if I was like a huge fan of the series, I would appreciate that they were doing that. And, I, and I'm not, but if I was, I would appreciate that they're doing that. But I appreciate it as someone coming to it with, I mean, I, I played some of the NES Castlevania games, but I don't remember because I probably didn't get past the first level. Um, <laughs> I, honestly, I, but... I don't, I, the, uh, the oldest Castlevania game I've beaten is Super 4. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I just remember them being hard. Just, I mean, NES hard, but hard. Um, and so I think that it it, it pays homage to people coming to it um, in a way that um, makes sense because it's gone in such a different direction that it's not going to bother people. I actually think that the changes that Ellis makes would be m- more problematic to fans if he was trying to follow the story a little bit more closely the way he like blends and mixes and matches i think just shows an appreciation for it but like hey it's almost like i'm telling an alternate you know universe version of the story so that works for me i think it's worth noting that the way 
especially outside of the human realm and the something something AD timeline, the way that monsters and beasts and demons are used because they can be summoned and resummoned. Um, they've done a really good job with that. I know, and shout outs uh, to you, Alana, for what you wrote for RPG Fan in your season three review. You noted probably one of my favorite scenes of all in season three was when Isaac goes up against that crazy archmage and Legion, who was called Grand Falloon in the uh, old localization of Symphony of the Night. It's just like this spherical pile of bodies and stuff um the way with, they, with bodies wearing crowns of thorns like like, like jesus at the uh, yeah. crucifixion yeah it is it is so intense um and they they did that so well and conceptually it's a completely different thing than what you would have seen in symphony of the night but the the concept of you can't even call it one creature it's like a i don't know what you would call it because it's it well it's legion you know but that kind of thing just works really well. Also, I can't remember the name of the monster, but the monster who does the brainwashing um, in the main town in season three, where Trevor and Sypha are, also oh. a reference to another monster. Alana, do you remember who that yeah, is? That, is that monster given a name? I don't remember. I don't um, remember. The only, I think they called it the Visitor in the context of yeah. the show, but I'm not. I'm no. not sure if it's uh, based on a specific Castlevania monster or if it has a name other than the Visitor. No, I don't remember anything specific about that, but I do certainly remember some designs mimicking. I definitely remember seeing a couple of Slogras. Those all yep. stick in Yeah, Slogra Slog, and Guybon show up in, se- in, in Season 2, uh, yeah, chasing do. after uh, the, the Trevor Alucard's uh, Sifa part of the story. Uh, yep. But yeah, I can't... I feel like the Visitor was modeled or patterned after uh, another of the sort of like larger demons from the Symphony of the Night era late 90s maybe rondo of blood as well but there's just so much that they do with the the supernatural creatures the demonic creatures i mean even the character carmilla was originally just um the name of one of the like generic female vampires and it's like well what if we use this character design and give her a real freaking story and not just make her you know just a random enemy to fight what if she has what if she's another major vampire lord of her own area and and sure enough, she's quite she's a really memorable and formidable villain. So I, I think that that I thought she was a bo- I thought she was a boss in uh, in Rondo of Blood. She she's is a boss in a couple of games. She's yeah. a boss. In, she's a boss in some games, and then she can also just be a generic vampire that you fight in different games. And, and she and she's also one of the first vampires in fiction. She, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the book Carmilla yes. is a, like uh, occurred before Bram Stoker's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah. Oh, cool. hi, yeah. Historically the name was the right choice because it, yeah, she is like the first known female vampire in like l- vampiric lore outside of Castlevania. Huh. I didn't know that. That's cool. You should read it. It's good. Carmilla yeah. is for the, for the time. It's good. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I think it's in, what, when was that written in the 1870s or something? Uh, no, I think it was, I want to say mid or early. Yeah, I don't remember. All right. Specifically. I mean, because yeah, when does Bram Stoker's Dracula come out? Like 1890? 1890 something. Yeah, yeah. 1890 something. It had, it had several theatrical uh, uh, adaptations by Hamilton Dean, and including some starring Bela Lugosi before the famous 1930s <laughs> film version with Bela Lugosi in it. A great Hungarian American, that Bella. 
I'm learning a lot about vampire lore today. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I appreciate that. But, uh, but, but Castlevania had always been sort of like a, a, a tied a little bit to vampire fiction and vampire mm-hmm. lore, but really was, really was just a sort of man with a whip fights, uh, fights monsters in the gothic horror setting. And they sort of created their own, uh, lore around Dracula. That's definitely not in any, in, in some of the books, like, like the castle rising every 100 years. Uh, but, but then they do adapt things, some things directly from vampire fiction, like, uh, Alucard mm-hmm. turning into a wolf mist and a bat, which are the three things that Dracula turns into in the, in the book. This is not a straight adaptation of any one Castlevania game, which you've alluded to a lot. It comes closest to Castlevania three and, uh, and Curse of Darkness, but, they really sneak bits of every Castlevania game in here. They mention Leon Belmont from uh, yeah. Lament of Innocence at one point, and, and which is the earliest game in the Castlevania canon. And they mention him being the Belmont that traveled from France to Eastern Europe, which explains why his name is so damn French, <laughs> but and, and why the name Belmont looks more much more French than it does uh, Slavic or Germanic. But they they are very clever with using Castlevania imagery and names without, uh, while still ter- telling their own story. Like what goes on in Lindenfeld doesn't really resemble any Castlevania story, but it's awesome as one of the plot lines of, um, of season three. And, and, uh, and Patrick mentioned how Lindenfeld was the main town of season three. I sort of disagree with that. This is a, a story that is building towards something bigger, but really has, uh, four scenes or, or, or four journeys all, Going in in parallel dire- uh, directions, and uh, w- and the main thrust of Isaac's story is that he wants revenge against Hector for Hector's betrayal of Dracula. But uh, Isaac and Hector don't have a single line of dialogue together in season three. That's right. that's going to be season four or season five territory. So yeah. they they do a really cool job of uh, having these four stories going on in four different parts of the world, where uh, Isaac travels across probably a third of a continent, mm-hmm. and Alucard does not leave the uh, Belmont. Uh, and Dracula castle dra- castle grounds, but it, I, I am really really intrigued for the journeys each of these characters are taking. Uh, the I guess you would call them the uh, the five main characters if we include if it's Alucard, Hector, Isaac, Sypha, Trevor, and what they're building towards. I'm watching the end of season three, which I finished a few nights ago. Um, only made me more excited for a potential season four and what random characters they might draw from Castlevania lore from season four. Because as a longtime Castlevania fan, um, I'm excited whenever I recognize something. Like, I I think they use Mm -hmm. the, like, uh, near the end of the fight in the final episode, uh, Trevor does a giant, like, uh, burning whip attack after he fights part of an enemy with two whips, which is also dope. But that, that burning whip is, like, is the weapon upgrade that you get in briefly in Castlevania three and a few, a few specific spots. Yeah. I had a stupid moment there where I was like, Oh my God, they're using the move kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like they're, they're doing the burning whip. Yeah, like, really? the yeah. like when he got the, um, the second whip that he gets, the, what's the chain whip called that he uses? He, they call it the morning, um, star. morning star. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was like, Oh my God, you can get that in the games as well. It was like, it's, yeah, the morning star I'm, upgrade is an upgrade of your leather whip in, in a couple of them. I, yeah. I will say, with, even without getting the reference, that was such a cool thing. Yeah, <laughs> it was I mean, very, it's very amazing. cool. And, and they make all the whip fighting so cool. I, I think yeah. that these fight scenes must be a little challenging to animate because they don't have yeah. them. They don't have them all the time. But when they do, they're just awesome. Yeah. Like, like the the fights in, uh, I mean, uh, season three, episode nine was the sex and death episode. 
because every because so, yeah, every <laughs> single every single scene was either a sex scene or a or a monster massacre scene. Um, but yeah. but, but the but the fight <laughs> the fighting was just breathtaking. Like all of Sifa's cool fire and ice magic, and Alucard being as stylish as possible with the sword familiar, and tre- and Trevor fighting with between one and two whips, or I should say be- between zero and two whips. Uh, I <laughs> uh, like I I think. I would have liked this series a lot if it was fighting every episode, but because they make the, the, the because the building is so good yeah. uh, and the fights are so cathartic, it, it's a really powerful effect. I, I've been talking too long, but yeah, yeah. No. The, 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 <laughs> that's good. Yeah, the, uh, the 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 bottom line is fighting good. Not sure if more fighting better or <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, no, go ahead, Pat. It's really hard to say. Um, so first of all, yeah, the, there are four parallel stories here. I, I referred to Lindenfeld as the main town because I actually went back and clocked it. And of the four parallel plots, the Trevor and Sypha one does get more time than you any of the you others. You clocked it? You actually wow. timed it? Yeah, I actually did. That's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Say you clocked it and we, and we still haven't had a clock tower in these uh, in these episodes yet. Give it time. Save, yeah. save It's season four, baby. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, that's how... That's I have no objective. Like, is, like yeah. that. Sure. Mm-hmm. I, I, I wanted to say, um, you know, I think it wouldn't... I'm not sure it would have worked to have too much action. I, I at first I was like, okay, this is a really slow build because they they did visit each of the four subplots in every episode, which means you only got a little bit of uh, ground gained in in dialogue or in solving mysteries, and it takes it takes a long time, but you get this enormous payoff in the last two episodes. And, and in, in in season two, the last two episodes. I had some really awesome action in it. No, I was going to say, like, it's not even the last two, is it? Like, the last episode kind of is just nothing, really. It's just like a resolution episode, like, where everybody decides where they're going to go. But yeah. Yeah, Yeah, the second to last one, yeah. Mm -hmm. Six and seven, but yeah, no. (laughs) No, no, but but also we get maybe the most distinctive Castlevania music moment in the whole series, Mm, when when Bloody Tears drops. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So good. (laughs) It's amazing. I mean, I think that, I guess I should back up for a second. First of all, if you haven't watched the Castlevania animated series and you're still listening at this point, stop um, and uh, go back and watch it um, and then keep listening. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that for me, like in the first two seasons, and I know we're going to focus mostly on the third season, in the first season and even in the second season for me, like I thought that um, things moved a little too quickly. Like in season two, which I enjoyed, I thought was really good. Episode seven, the music cues were incredible. But like I, I wanted... The things I liked most about season two were the interplay between the three main characters, between Alucard, Sypha, and Trevor. Mm-hmm. I thought that's really what brought the series to life and their interactions. And I wanted more development mm-hmm. of Trevor and Alucard in particular. And um, I-, I wanted to see more of that. Whereas with season three, they slow it down to such a crawl. But to me, every single scene is still fascinating. I mean, I thought season three was far and away, like a huge leap up from a writing perspective over season two. And season two, I think, honestly, like the action scenes with Dracula, I think are cooler um, than anything in season three. But it doesn't matter to me because I was so much more invested in the characters. And we haven't really talked about the fact that at the end of season two, they they kill off the villain um, and the, allowing them to like sort of wipe the tables clean and you think that Carmilla is going to be like the centerpiece of season three, but she's not. I, well, um, the, th- the thing is, one th- part about season three is that uh 
Carmilla and her vampire sisters want to use Hector to raise an army yeah. of, of night creatures. And uh, But nobody in that castle knows that Isaac is heading to, is headed towards them, bent on revenge, uh-huh. and he already has an army of night creatures. So I uh-huh. think we're going to have a vampire versus forge master, night creature versus night creature war in as part of season four, yeah. pr- pr- presuming that we get a... I think, I think they did it's get already renewed. Been renewed. Yeah, okay. So yeah. we are getting season four. Yeah. So, yeah. And I don't know if uh, Trevor Sifa or Alucard will be involved in that so they're they're building towards moments and clashes that i am too uncertain to try and predict it's but it but yeah. it's, it's super cool everything that they're setting up mm-hmm. i'll make a what i think is a pretty safe prediction about season four based on the way season three ends is that you're you're definitely right about um the isaac hector forge master clash that's coming i suspect Stypha and trevor um will be pulled into it and they will try to enlist Alucard's help, and Alucard will be more than a little reticent after everything he's been through, and they might even need to move the castle, and he might be like, yeah, last time someone asked me to move the castle, they died, so let's not go there. And I think that's that's how they're going to reconnect, is in trying to put a stop to some insane bloodshed that's going to go down around Styria. That's my guess. I mean, I think it's a reasonable guess. I guess sort of backing backing up back to a second, in, in terms of talking about... Um the unexpected and things like that. Um, you know, to me, I think that the thing that even makes season three more interesting beyond um, sort of the predictions that we have for it is how well they develop even the brand new characters. I actually think like Lenore is the most interesting character here. Lenore is the best character. character. Lenore Um, is the best character. And she's super fascinating. And I think that, again, I think that's a a tribute to how effectively they're, because you could argue this season is table setting. I mean, you're talking about what's going to happen in season four, but for me, um, I think the table setting here is, probably just as fascinating as it would have as like sort of moving that action forward. Whereas in something like season two, they would have moved it forward. I think a little bit quicker, at least to me. Yeah. And, and for the record, um, if anyone wants my opinion, every single dialogue between Lenore and Hector is my favorite scene in season three. Like <laughs> I actually you could just you. cut, you could just cut to those. And I'm just like, this was some of the best anything that's come out of Netflix in forever. I, uh, was watching this at the same time I was watching season three of the excellent cartoon Ladybug and Cat Noir, which is is which is basically basically French Sailor Moon. For bugs. Yeah, but but with bug motifs. So like I, I was balancing this um uh this rated R gothic violent action show with a show about a girl that trans- transforms into a ladybug superhero and and, and this is a, a roundabout way of saying that Netflix has some pretty interesting animated content uh going okay. around in 2020 <laughs> and for all audiences too because i mean i think that the the magic school bus reboot probably isn't for adults but uh, castlevania definitely <laughs> is <laughs> I'm I'm going to watch the Magic School Bus reboot now that you've said that. You know, you know, it's all, it's awesome. it, it, it's all right, and they even brought back um, oh, what's her name? Uh, uh, Lily Tomlin, the original voice of uh of Miss Frizzle, back for just one episode because <laughs> it, because it, it's a uh, it's like it's a uh, Miss Frizzle's niece or something is the new Miss Frizzle, but it's a uh, you know you know it was all right, but uh, I, I would recommend Castlevania before the Magic School Bus reboot. Fair enough. <laughs> Um, so what did everybody else think about the Lenore storyline? I know me and Pat have weighed in here. I, I love the Lenore storyline. Um, I, 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 I feel bad for what's happening to Hector, but uh, between this and the rumination on vampire politics in season two made me really intrigued by how vampire society is going to flourish 
post Dracula because Dracula seemed to be the the oldest, strongest, most powerful vampire in society, and he brought vampires from multiple continents to Wallachia or uh, or Romania or Hungary or, or wherever this takes place. So, with a power void appearing in Dracula's absence, we get these vampire sisters in Styria with uh, with Carmilla, Lenore, Striga, and Marana. And the way that Lenore manipulates Hector, like putty in her hands, uh, leading leading to uh, uh, a sex scene in season in sorry in episode nine, and a and Hector entering slavery in season ten, is. It, it, I, it was breathtaking. Like Lenore, like the just the way that she was luring Hector into her trap was really riveting. The uh, for all of season three, I don't know if it was my favorite uh, sto- side story because I, I I just really like Trevor and Sypha together. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yes, uh, they're they're a good couple. Yeah, they're they're a, a great couple, and um, them uh, interacting with uh, Saint Germain, possibly the weirdest C- Castlevania reference in this entire in this entire <laughs> thing. He was he was a goofball in a top hat who was possibly a time traveling magician in Correct. the in a in in Curse of Darkness, and uh, he loses a battle with Death, and then gives uh, gives Hector an item. Hector is the main character of Curse of Darkness, and then and then disappears. And when they brought back when uh, they introduced Saint Germain, and I realized who, what character he was. I'm like, really? They're bringing back this dude they're bringing back this dude and also it's bill nye That's yeah right the great thing about it uh my second favorite voice casting in this whole show because uh <laughs> um the captain who is a character that uh oh. that, that isaac meets in uh oh. in his in his story yeah. is voice is voiced by lance reddick from the wire and the what? john and the john wick yeah. movies i did yeah. not notice that yeah no he's yeah. oh my yeah, gosh he's, yep. he's lieutenant daniels and the concierge yeah. of the hotel in in, in oh, those i love two lance reddick so yeah, yeah so, i yeah. love him even more now that i didn't recognize yeah him. so lance reddick doing an islander accent was uh was oh, my, was so my dope. favorite my favorite voice casting <laughs> yeah oh. the, the voice acting and the cast were all very good ridiculously good yeah, yeah. jason oh, yeah. isaacs as um the judge, the judge. oh yeah. but we could talk about the judge subplot for quite some time i mean the big reveal at the end of season three about his little pleasures um Holy crap! That was some dark stuff, right there. Yeah, it was very dark. But you know, from like sort of, sort of a thematic perspective, I wasn't really sure what point Ellis was trying to make. Like, it was shocking. It was dark. It was messed up. But like, why? Why did I need to know? Like, this dude's evil now too. It was like the point, just like that everyone's evil. Like, I, it seemed. I don't know. That was like maybe the one moment where I was like, that, that just seems yeah. like excessive to me personally. But I'm just, I, I'm just curious if anybody else can justify that to me. Oh, I didn't feel that way at all. I think. Um... It had to do with, I mean, right when you meet the judge from the start, it takes a while till you know whether or not he's on the side of yeah. good. And he's certainly on the side of sanity. And, and he's right, he's order and not chaos, but he's certainly not lawful good uh, on the old three by three alignment chart. <laughs> and I, th- I think it's, it's an important theme uh, to tie into how Isaac feels about humanity. Isaac's not there for that part, but it's certainly driving home for the viewer um, that sort of nihilistic, you know, kill them all and let God sort them out or the devil or somebody. Um, <laughs> that that view that Isaac has taken. And as he's going, people are trying to suggest to him, hey, you know, maybe there's still some good in the world and he's conflicted. But the story ends for us with Sypha and Trevor with this little side plot saying, hey, the guy that helped you out, did he even though he's one of the quote unquote good guys, he's a pretty messed up human. 
And are humans still worth keeping around if these are the people we rely on to run the little towns and villages of Europe? It's a tough question. Yeah, I think this show really wants to make it very clear that there is no one who is straight up neutral good in this universe. I mean, I mean, the closest might be Sypha. But yeah. but the but uh, you have this judge who is I would call lawful neutral. He really only cares about maintaining order and doing what's good for Lindenfeld, even though it's a, a lot of it is is ruling a little harshly and uh, sometimes murdering people that annoy him, which includes troublemaking children, which leads to that chilling moment where you, uh, where you see um, the cor- the corpses of people he's set aside and killed uh, at at his at his home. Yeah, but, but his, his shoe trophies. Yeah, that yeah. was which was, oh, which was yeah, that was yeah, a little gross. But then you have a, a character who I thought was going to be bad, but I ended up sympathizing with a little too much, probably. And that's in season two. There's a vampire named Godbrand, who's <laughs> yeah, who he's is awesome. you know he, he's 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 a boorish Viking who definitely enjoys drinking and womanizing and violence and and a bunch of horrible things. But in the uh, discussions of vampire politics that we got a lot of in season two, a a, a startling amount of in season two, he's the one saying, "Hey, um, this complete." Complete nihilism of Dracula wanting to destroy everything is not good for vampires. We need humans around for feeding. We should keep them around as in controlled populations like livestock uh, if we want vampires to thrive after this war. And uh, that's falling upon deaf ears because secretly Dracula and Isaac want to annihilate everything. Um, Hector's a little bit more naive, so he's what. So after talking to Carmilla and others, Hector supports the idea of killing humanity because of all of the evil he's seen in humanity, but keeping humans around for vampires. Like I was shocked with how much I agreed with what Godbrand was saying for him, be for him being a, uh, an awful, like mostly evil character. And, uh, I also found myself agreeing with um, the plans of Carmilla and her vampire sisters a little too often because this show really, really is determined to see the goodness in vampires, especially probably especially with Dracula as a renaissance man. Um, (laughs) Dracula having all of these uh, secrets of science and medicine and technology that he that uh, is centuries of accumulated knowledge that he's preserving versus uh a lot of evil activity from humans like uh like what the church does in seasons one and two uh how the judge behaves in season three how isaac sees the good and evil in humanity during his journey he uh he's he's beset by bandits early on and then he meets this merchant and has a a a rather beautiful philosophical conversation with him (laughs) and Mm -hmm. then uh, and then he meets the sea captain voiced by lance reddick who's uh who is uh another person that uh lets isaac see the good in humans but it as al- soon as he gets off that boat, though. Yeah, no, it, it almost <laughs> alternates good human, bad human, good human, bad human with Isaac's yep. with Isaac's experience. Uh, point. Yeah. yeah, 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 and it's because yeah. because Isaac um, truly hated all humans before season three, and now he's a little bit more conflicted, but is is definitely leading an army of night creatures into uh, into Styria. So, yeah. it, again, this show absolutely wants to operate in um in ethical shades of gray and and is is having me root for vampires in an uncomfortable amount yeah definitely as Stephen two even did that though as well like not mm-hmm. just godbrand but like the entire council basically like dracula himself is probably the most sympathetic character in the entire show and absolutely he is the big bad apparently and not once you know he was 
not pathetic isn't the right word, but he was very he, he, he was tired and exhausted and like the, yeah. the big showdown mm-hmm. with him, even though it was a big and flashy and you know it was proper fight and things like that you got the sense that he didn't he was giving up like just before that fight he was really like do i really need to do this he was doubting why he needed to do it like he just didn't have the faith in it but like even through season three like camilla and the vampire sisters isaac you are rooting for them like in different ways like not all the time but you see why they stand for what they stand for and actually to contrast the judge from trevor and cypher's story um I kind of took it in with Alucard's story, which involves two characters, uh, two Japanese yeah. vampire hunters called Taka and Sumi, who we'll probably get to a little bit more in a bit. But both of those stories are about the two of them, tr- the two groups, trusting other people and then having the rug pulled out from them at the end. So it's like they find these new spaces with new people to trust, and then it's taken away from them. So the human slash heroes, I guess, the hero characters are in a worse position than the villains are, who are both Camilla and that have got their potential, they've got their new pet and Hector, and then Isaac has got his big demon army, and it's like, well, where's this going to go kind of thing? And, like, and, and yeah, like, yeah. St. Germain, if he is human, is now in another dimension or another timeline. Because yeah. the ultimate plot in Lindenfeld was this group of humans obsessed with Dracula and pulled into a hell cult by a demon uh, by that demon called the Visitor, or I should say that night creature called that visit, called the Visitor. They avoid the the term demon in this in this series. Yeah, they do mostly. Mm, they do. But the uh, but they were trying to open up a, open a portal to hell to revive Dracula. Saint Germain wanted to use the same power to open a portal to a mysterious loved one who's not exactly identified. And so St. Germain ends up sort of getting his way, but the entire village of Lindenfeld is completely annihilated and as a result, which just, which just leaves uh, Trevor and Sypha or Sifa with a, with a hollow feeling that if anything, just reminds me of Dracula in season two. Dra- Dracula's yeah. had, it has seen so much loss and felt so much pain. He just sort of wanted to end it all. And, uh, and, and that is like, as like, I wonder if that hollow feeling that Trevor and Sifa felt leaving Lindenfeld is kind of, like Dracula, like they tr- they're trying to do the most good, but end up but end up suffering the most, or or at least suffering without dying. Mm-hmm. In in mentioning Dracula again, I, we haven't mentioned this scene. Part of that, um, it's either the eternal corridor or infinite corridor, the the whole time and space traveling that Saint Germain's doing, the whole thing they're trying to open in in Lindenfeld. That scene that we get when they they cut to that portal into hell and you just see, you know, Dracula holding his wife and mm. uh, like, he looks over when like they're trying to summon him. And it's like, he's, you can almost see him saying like, like, no, don't summon me. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm happier here. Like, even if this place is barren, at least I'm, I'm just quiet and calm with my wife. Leave me the hell alone. Like it made me think of that line. Um, and, in uh, Milton's Paradise Lost, where it, it talks about Satan making a heaven out of hell, not that it was a paradise for Dracula, but it was a it was a peaceful place and a place where he could rest with her. And he's like, "Don't bring me back to your crap. I don't want it." And he doesn't say it; they just give you the you, you see his eyes, yeah. and then it's like, and you know, they prevent him from being summoned. But it looks like he didn't want to be summoned anyway. I I'm not a hundred percent sure on that. He definitely. Uh, sees the portal or something approaching from the portal, and then he holds up his hand. But I'm not sure if it's to try to stop the portal or to 
maybe drag him and his wife back into the back into the mortal realm. I don't I I don't exactly know. And because um the Castlevania series is predicated on Dracula uh being resurrected periodically, even though I I, I we've talked over and over how Warren Ellis is not married to Castlevania lore, I think reviving Dracula is the kind of Castlevania lore that they might recreate. It's going to happen, I think. Yeah. Oh yeah, I think it has to. I mean, I think it'll happen in order to sort of sow more chaos once, I don't know, maybe, maybe the vampires win next season and then St. Germain shows up with them or something. I don't know. But that's sort of the way that I could see that going, personally. Which vampires win, though? Because <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah. yeah. The, four, the, four, the, 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 four, the four vampires is what I was referring to. But yes, who knows? Yeah, I think, I think the sisters go down. Um, part of me hopes that Lenore makes a deal with Dracula to survive because she's the diplomat and the diplomat is not weak. I mean, that, that we're just, I know we're moving around a lot here, but that, this reminds me of the first scene she has with Hector um, where he tries to mess with her because he thinks she's weak. Mm-hmm. And then the way that she attacks him, I'm like, okay, here's a character. I, here's a character I can get down with. Uh, <laughs> I gotta be honest. Like I identify enough with Hector that I'd be like, yeah, I'd probably fall for this too. I definitely would. <laughs> oh no, no. Um, if, I, if I was in Hector's position, the no. same thing would have happened to me, except it would have happened much more easily and, and quickly. <laughs> yeah. I'm kidding. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, seriously. Like when you, when you're watching episodes eight and nine, like leading up to the slavery bond moment, um, you can one, you totally see it coming, and two, mm-hmm. there was this tiny part of me that was like, maybe Shirley means it. Maybe she's not <laughs> yeah, tricking her, <laughs> and you will, you really want to believe it in the moment. And like, that's good writing. Like that is why I am so impressed by that scene. Is like, if you can make me feel the way I know Hector is supposed to be feeling, you've really done your job as a writer, <laughs> and not just writing, also the voice acting, everyone behind the show. I mean, that everything about it was just. It was incredible. I, I I did not believe that she was really falling in love falling in love with Hector for a second. No, that is exactly what I was going to say. I did not buy it for a second. <laughs> she was walking him around in a dog collar. There mm-hmm. is no way there was anything. She, she there was no way she wanted him for anything other than she's probably going to over. I don't know how into the sisterhood she is. They feel like really tight knit, and I guess we'll see where it goes. I don't want to theorize any more on it, but like, well, uh, yeah, hmm. she might. You know what I mean? She might go off, like Pat said, go off with the old Dracula. Who knows? But let's not maybe think too far ahead and stick to season three. Well, <laughs> well Striga and Marana are lovers, and I don't think they're going to betray each other. No and, way. And, and Carmilla is sort of the one that united them and is probably the strongest and, and wildest of them, is, is what I'm guessing. And, and Lenore is... If one of them betrays the sisterhood, I think it'll be Lenore, since yeah. since since diplomacy and mind games are her strength. But I I don't know. I I, re- I think that the sisterhood will probably remain strong until maybe one of them dying fra- uh, fractures them. And I also noticed how uh, those four the four of them are sort of the brilliant schemer, the diplomat, the warrior, and the organizer. I think Dracula was all four of those things. And <laughs> yeah. and and uh, and combined, the sisterhood might be. A, a match for Dracula, but ultimately, I think, especially since how they how they communicate Dracula being so powerful when when they uh, when he just beats the crap out of the main trio uh, towards the end of season two, and they show flashbacks of him being a completely savage conqueror. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't think we've encountered. I think I think nothing in season three is as powerful or threatening as Dracula. So Dr- Dr- right. so Dracula's resurrection is probably mm-hmm. inevitable. And might sort of recreate 
the uh you know the game's canon of Dracula's castle rising every hundred years. I, I don't I don't know if they will or not, but I, I think a lot of they're they're building up for a lot of stuff in season four, but Dracula's return is inevitable. I think Lenore loves Hector. <laughs> nope. No, I th- I think she does. Explain I yourself. I I just also think um that she's a narcissist and that's what love looks like to a narcissist. Maybe. I think yeah. I I think she has affection for Hector. Um, I would be surprised if it if it turns into love like with like what Dracula had with his light with his wife, which I think was love. No, it's not like true love, love, but it's as good as she's gonna get. I mean, it's like the love that you have for your dog. Well, she calls it. She calls him a pet. Um, And I think, but I think it does go. I think it does go slightly beyond that. Um, for her utility and usefulness and uh her her plans and her needs will come uh so much further above anything else that she ultimately thus can't know love uh like Vlad Tepish did with his wife or like um Belmont and Belnades. But for who she is, I think Hector's the closest she'll get. I don't think they're going to show any sort of stronger love interest for her ever in the show. So Does she yeah. need one? No, no. Most and most of the characters don't have one, but uh, I think the struggle for Hector will be, you know, does he develop some kind of Stockholm syndrome, or like, is the distrust so strong that it leads to hatred that he wants to kill her? Like, I don't know what it's going to look like, but I think he already has some form of Stockholm syndrome, which is why he was able to profess loyalty to her uh, um, so so eagerly and. It's not love. It's maybe the love that someone has for a cat that's useful enough to catch mice. It's um, Lenore manipulated Hector. Uh, it's going to be a lot of suffering for Hector in season four, but I, I don't think that Lenore loves Hector. I think that um, I'm fascinated to see where their characters go, but uh, it's you're, you're being a little bit too much of romantic here, Pat. Is my <laughs> it was funny because I, I was reading a, an interview with Warren Ellis about why Hector has to go through so much suffering. And he said, like, his voice just pisses him off. Um, he's got, like, this heroic voice. So he's like, you know, but he also, like, deals with suffering really well. So I don't think I'm going to change it anytime soon. Um, and, yeah, but I think that's just, like, Hector's lot in life. And I actually think that Hector is probably, from Ellis's perspective, like, the worst kind of human. Like, he, he has, like, yeah. ultimately he has no principle. Yeah, um, exactly. He's so gullible. Like, look what happened right. to him with Carmilla in season two. And then it's mm-hmm. happened again in season three. And I was just kind of rolling my eyes a little bit. I was like, are you kidding? Are you doing this again kind of thing? And then it you know it just escalates i I don't know if he has principles or convictions other than curiosity like like he wanted like when he was a little kid learning forge master techniques he was reviving dead cats and dogs and just wanting to learn more he and he's basically still a child without without real convictions but definitely wanting to be a forge master and wanting to be a part of something he's i mean he he's handsome and important but also a bit of a follower yeah, I felt really sorry for him, and I guess this comes from reading oh, yeah, yeah. wikis, because I know what happens. To, I haven't played Castlevania, Curse of Darkness, but I know what happens, and I know the in-between, I suppose, or the before Curse mm-hmm. of Darkness. Yeah. So I see where this may go, basically, and I still feel sorry for him. But yeah, I think that he's an idiot for being so gullible, and he's just <laughs> going to come out of the other end of it at some point. But... I, like, like, I hope he meets up with some combination of either Alucard and uh, or uh, Trevor, Trevor and Sifa, so he can, you know, 
see a better side of, of heroism in humanity and use his powers for good a little bit. But that's just me wanting the best for the characters I mostly like in this show, which is almost everyone, really. Like, I, I didn't exactly shed tears for Taka and Sumi, but I did. I, I felt huh. bad. I felt bad for Alucard after what happened between him and Taka and Sumi. It's this is a pretty large cast without anyone being obviously good, except for maybe Sifa. And everyone having at least some interesting wrinkle to their character. And this is a cast of characters that, you know, enters 15 or into the 15 or 20 range. It's a really impressive achievement. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think that um, with Taka and Sumi uh, in the Alucard storyline, I think that, uh, again, and I I, I like the season a lot, but I think that one of the weaknesses of that particular storyline is you get so little time with the two of those two together without being in front of Alucard um, that I don't feel like they have the sort of coloring for me to um like it, there, there's not well drawn enough for me to feel particularly bad for what alucard does to them like i feel bad because alucard is lonely and obviously unhappy and also and obviously wants people there but like in terms of like them feeling betrayals all the time and so like they're just going to assume that alucard is betraying them like i don't know enough about that for me to really have like a strong connection i, I want to hear if you guys think i'm crazy but um Along with the fact that I think Taka and Sumi were probably the least well-written characters, or maybe they just didn't get enough time for me to learn enough about them. I think there was a setup in the last few episodes there where, you know, Alucard said he was going to teach them things, but ultimately what he ended up doing was just giving them access to this, to this giant Belmont vault and said, have at it and let them do their thing. And then it was, um, to me, you know, it almost goes back to, um, like an Adam and Eve story. Like um, they, they tasted the, you know, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then bad shit went down. And it was almost like if you hadn't introduced them to those things, at least without context, because that's what it seems like he did. He was just dropped them off in that vault and was like, have fun, learn things. And then like they get overwhelmed and like drunk on the potential for power with all the things they can do. And then when they, they push for that quickly and Helicard's like, I don't want to do anything right now. And it's like that zeal overcomes them. And I felt like there was something very like Adam and Eve like about Taka and Sumi. Uh, I, I don't exactly agree, but one thing that Zach alluded to was that, uh, Taka and Sumi, the viewer does not get a lot of scenes with them alone without Alucard. And I think that it boils down to Alucard being a little too trusting and naive. Uh, Al- Taka and Sumi traveled there to learn how to kill the vampire that was ruling that uh, the part of Japan where they lived and also kill the remains of her army after they learned that... What was her name? Cho? I think that sounds right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cho yeah. or Sho. And um, they wanted to learn how to defeat Cho. When they learned that Cho was uh, was dead, how to defeat the, her followers. And Alucard wanted to teach them and pass on all of the knowledge that the Belmonts and his father had accumulated. And I think Alucard's idea was to, was to teach another generation. And their idea was to just go back to Japan with, with a vampire killing knowledge and technology. And because Alucard was too trusting and Taka and Sumi weren't trusting enough, their goal of defeating the Japanese vampires over um, outweighed uh, whatever, um, whatever affection and whatever want of learning they really had. So, like, like be, 
basically Alucard and Taka and Sumi's goals didn't quite align. And that was hidden from the viewer a little bit because almost all of the scenes with Taka and Sumi are with Alucard. So I, I don't know if it was an Adam and Eve um, fruit of the tree of knowledge thing so much as just uh, Alucard trusting too much his and having his trust betrayed and that affecting his character going forward. Right. And I, I agree with you, but I guess I, my point is that I think that the way that it's written, it, it ends up making it with the rest of the three storylines. I feel like both sides um, are given, you know, a, 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 even, even the the members of the Priory and uh, Trevor and Sypha's storyline. Like I know more about them than I know about these two characters. And so because of that, I think that it, for me, like I, it, it lowers, I think that we're supposed to feel like that, that contrasting tragedy um, between Alucard and then those two, those two. Um, and to me, it just turns them into like ciphers for, um, for whatever it was they wanted Alucard to go through this season, personally. Also, what they do is abhorrent and yeah, completely sure like, oh yeah, almost out of context, like not out of context, but like almost out of character. Like you maybe get a hint that there's something, they know something and they want to do something, but not that. Like, good grief. Yeah. Like, I, I was pretty uncomfortable in that scene and I'm pretty good with things like that and some violence, but that was genuinely like, oh my God, kind of, I'm not sure how to take this. I'm not, you know, because they were essentially taking advantage of Alucard because he's lonely and they know that and they're showing him affection. And then all of a sudden they're strapping him down to a bed, doing things to him. And then he kills them, which right. is the, you know, I was, they could have done it way sooner too. Like this, the sequence goes on way longer than it needed to. If they really wanted to strap him down, he was already, he was already like there for it before yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> nine of the is an unusual beast. It has some really good highs. Um, yeah, and that like the melding between the violence and the action scenes and the two sex scenes um, is very. It's meant to make you feel uncomfortable, but yeah, like Alucard's in particular, I don't know. It was it was a lot to take in, and I thought. And the, the, mean, way, the way they were chaining him to the bed with silver, and you saw the silver burning into his flesh, mm. was uh, was was very uncomfortable. Uh, and 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 even the way that Alucard killed them by summoning his sword familiar was, uh, which is one of the things he hadn't told them about, was sort of yeah. uh, was unsettling. Like, like between that and we learned uh, what we learned about the judge being sort of a serial killer were character turns at the end of season three that I, th I think were designed to unsettle the viewer. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm glad I'm not the only one that felt a little icky about the Taka and Sumi sex, not sex scene. Like I, like I could totally accept what was going on with uh, Hector and Lenore. And I did like that for this climactic, you know, thing with episode nine it was like you were having two epic battles and you were also having these two like dark twisted sex scenes and it was yeah, like the sex and death episode yeah for lenore and hector i was like all right i get what's going on that makes sense and and it's a fairly similar thing um and it's it's you know it's always to me it's always sad you know when when sex is used as a weapon um and as a tool for deceit or manipulation uh but i feel like it's a it's a Especially awful for Alucard, who 
you know, it's it's been made abundantly clear at this point. He even says like he's losing his mind from loneliness mm-hmm. um, before Takan's to me come along. But he didn't he didn't see them. At, we have no hint or or reason to believe that he sees them as uh, people that he would pursue sexually. But then they they almost use that as a weakness against him, and I it it made me feel like really yuckers inside. So I'm glad I'm not the only one that felt <laughs> that way. I mean, I can deal with some stuff like that, but that was definitely, it was more the shock of it happening, I think, in the, yeah, because there were scenes in the show where Alucard was like training Tucker and Sumi and they were having a good time and they were like hugging and holding hands and things like that and doing things. It was like, it didn't feel anything beyond like, not companionship, but like it was good friendship and kind of trust. And for it to evolve into that was just, I don't know, it just, it didn't sit right with me, and it was a very, and I know Warren Ellis is known for doing things like this, because I believe Warren Ellis has written a number of comics, and I know he's quite well known for graphic violence, and obviously Castlevania is not, not ungraphic in terms of normal bloody violence, (laughs) Um, but I don't know, like, I don't think it needed to be that at all. It was mu- too much, I think. Yeah. Like I'm not, I'm not sensitive about things like that at all. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I've heard some criticisms leveled against this about like the volume of profanity that um, the characters use. Uh, and first of all, in real life, I use just that much profanity. So um, I know like ac- excess is the point of this show. Sometimes I think, yeah. and, I, and 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 I totally see that. But in this case, it was like excess that didn't that didn't jive for me. Like it didn't it didn't feel naturally led up to it didn't feel uh, it didn't feel fully formed and like the sort of like the familial relationship between the two of them and then onto alucard like yeah i I definitely again i have a very high tolerance for all these things but i think when when you said familial i think that might be it like like you said like when they were sort of like they're like training and then they sort of like roll around and it's like yeah there's almost this like father and child relationship so it it almost feels incestuous for a moment well actually Mm -hmm. they're brother and sister so there's that part too. It is indeed incestuous. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I meant. Yeah. I think that, yeah, maybe that's what's, yeah, that's what's hitting me as like, as my creep factor is like hitting its, its max with that scene. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, I am, I mean, I am typically squeamish to a lot of this kind of stuff, but for good storytelling, I can forego that. And that's why I, I loved Castlevania so far, but man, yeah, the Taka and Sumi stuff was just like, whoa. I, I don't I don't think they're brother and sister. I think they were raised together as as or, as orf, as you're orphans. Right. I think you're right. Yeah, I think, it's I, not clear. Yeah, I think yeah. they're raised together as orphans, and they have a partnership that might be like siblings. But uh, I was like Wuthering Heights. Okay. Yeah, and, and I <laughs> and I uh, <laughs> and I thought their partnership at first might have been romantic, but then I I sort of just let it stay uncertain for most of the of the viewing of this. Um, I. I, I, I'm not sure any of the violence or sex crossed the line for me watching Castlevania because, again, I have a a pretty reasonable tolerance for this kind of thing. But uh, there was definitely moments of sex and violence that were meant to unsettle. And uh, some of the violence, especially like, like the, uh, the families being burned and having their souls sucked away to the Priory in the, uh, in, yeah. around the end of Season 3, and some of the more brutal decapitations or disembowelments uh like a lot of that is unsettling and of course the scene with uh the, the sex scene with takasumi and alucard is all really unsettling but i think it's designed that way it, like i um I, I think it's by design and 
I don't want to. I don't want to sound like I'm defending any of it. I think they could have. They, they could have cut some of it and still gotten the message they wanted to communicate across. But I, I don't know. Like they, they just. I think they just wanted to communicate these ideas of manipulation and and brutality with these different scenes, and they they got it across. But I, I don't know a lot of. I, I do. I do read some comics, but I don't know a lot of Warren Ellis's work. I'm not sure of how much of it I've read. To your point, I mean, yeah, they definitely got the job done. I think all I'm saying is with talking to me, maybe they got it a little too done. <laughs> and, and maybe, and maybe that's just it, almost certainly that's, that's probably just my upbringing and, and my bias. I'm sure for other people, like you pointed out some of the violence that like, you know, I'm sitting pretty with it because I'm an American who grew up with, you know, violence being super okay. Whereas in other regions and and other parts and other cultures in this world there are people who who may find it a lot harder to stomach the violence in why can't i ever remember the name of this town Linden, um, uh, yeah in, yeah lindenfeld in mm-hmm. um that they'll they'll find that a lot harder to take than any of the sex scenes so i, I think that's a fair point michael all right um, so are there any, uh, scenes or characters we haven't talked about that you guys really wanted to, you guys really wanted us to chat about at this point? Mm, I thought that Isaac had maybe the most boring story of these, uh, of, of these characters, just cause it felt like that the least happened, but I loved his conversations with the merchant and the captain. Um, <laughs> like, like, like him meeting these, uh, really interesting people who were determined to get under his skin a little bit cause they could tell, how much uh, hate was in Isaac's heart, and they and they they sort of deliberately amused him and helped him in ways that uh, got Isaac reconsidering. Like like I, I liked moments of Isaac's story because of the minor characters involved. Because I, I could have, I was surprised by the amount of vampire politics in um, season two. Because I thought it would, that was after season one, I thought it was going to be like a road show with Alucard, Trevor, and Sifa going on adventures on the way to, on the way to uh, Alucard's. I'm sorry, on the way to Dracula's castle. And I think we got that show sort of in between season two and three <laughs> with, with, uh, with, with, uh, Belnades and Belmont. But Isaac on the road seemed like not enough happened. And I sort of wish we got more conversations with him talking to quirky people because that, that was my favorite part of his storyline. There was that, um, there was that one, um, creature that he makes. Yeah, that, yeah. Is that, that was my yeah. favorite Isaac. Oh yeah, oh, oh the, yeah. The, the 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 fly-like thing that was a, that yeah. was a, a former Greek yeah, philosopher. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that that part was great, and I I hope there's more with that character in season four. Like I hope he's like, um, like a like a second in command with Isaac with the army, and like they have interactions together when they're trying to figure out what to do as they go forward. Because he's he was a really interesting character. Yeah, I mean, I think Isaac's arc is probably my favorite, actually, because hmm. of... I think... I, I I don't really know. It just seems to click with me, and it's the one that... I mean, out of all of the characters, I think Isaac's interpretation has definitely been the loosest. Isaac is another character from Curse of Darkness, but he is extremely different in this adaptation. Yeah, I think, um, I think he's the final boss. I, I, I didn't yeah, beat Curse of Darkness. He is, but... he's the main villain yeah. in... Curse of Darkness, so I'm assuming that's where they're probably going to go with it here, but like, he's insane. Like, he's absolutely not so as far as I'm aware in Curse of Darkness in the point where he's kind of like twisted. This is similar in that he's scheming and cunning and he's definitely got an agenda but it's not as kind of it's not zany 
like kind of stereotypical no. No kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Yeah. He's not he's not Kafka. He's he's not the laughing nihilist. He's yeah. just nihilist. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think Isaac oh, I'm gonna string my words together properly because I've I I praised it in my review and I just the conversations are what made it for me and I think like I love the action and I love how that it's like not it's just infrequent and the conversations make this series and I think the two things I loved most about season three were the vampires the vampire sisters and Isaac's conversations with all these random people like the conversation he had with the man with who, this merchant who he got the mirror off of was really fascinating I loved mm. all of the yeah. artistry there I loved the I just I just loved it and I loved how softly spoken Isaac is to people and how he can just on the flip of a coin, he will completely go for it and all his minions will go and they listen and obey to his every beck and call. And Isaac is terrifying. Like he is so powerful by the end of the season that, I mean, he's, you know, we don't know where Carmilla is and the sisters are going to go quite, but like Isaac for me is in the best position by the end of this season and well, he's we know where he's going, going yeah we know where he's going definitely he's going after yeah. Hector um yeah. so yeah I mean I've definitely worded it better in my review I'm struggling for words right <laughs> now but like he's I was just fascinated by him yeah. and watching him go from season what season two to season three is really delightful to see him grow as a character on his own yeah, I mean, I, if you had told me that um, one of the two here, Hector, would lead a storyline going into season three, I would have definitely guessed Hector because I feel like yeah. he was definitely better drawn there. But I think Isaac, in a lot of ways, um, because I think that he is deeply sympathetic to us as viewers, like I, I find him very sympathetic despite what he does. Like every time he makes a decision, I understand why he makes it. And he has all these, he seems to really enjoy conversing with people who he enjoys. And he has met like, what, three people? Because um, there's also that woman in the town who tells him about the mirror um, toward mm-hmm. the end of the season. And I feel like he's the character who has the most room for growth or for de-escalation. Um, I mean, I think that he is like, to me, he's the wild card um, because he's building this army and building this army and building this army. Um, but I think that he has, uh, and I, uh, you guys might disagree with me, but I think he has the possibility of redemption here. Um, even if you think he needs to be redeemed, I guess, which is a question that is open, I suppose. But because he he seems to be willing to adjust and move and talk to people and understand people in ways that even he doesn't want to acknowledge to himself at this point. He's still loyal to Dracula as well. Yeah. Even though he's dead. So he's probably going to revive Dracula. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's a likely outcome. Um, but I, I don't know. Like I, I liked parts of Isaac's story, but also thought that him just going to Austria for revenge felt like the like the emptiest least interesting goal here uh my my favorite storyline was trevor and sifa like um i I just love their uh love them as characters i like their repartee they probably had the most comedy in any of the four uh story arcs so like them sort of encountering horrors uh but mostly trying to do good uh, is my favorite storyline here, and also they're just so cool in action. Like, they, oh, like yeah, they, just like the, the Trevor and the and the Sifa fights are just awesome. And I sort of hope that uh, this is maybe a different question than what Zach asked, but if if there's a place in Castlevania lore that they haven't gone yet, but yet go, I hope it's 
Alucard becoming so jaded that he falls asleep only to be woken up by Richter and Maria. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, drag Symphony of the Night into this, please. Yes, if I was to get a sequel series with a different Belmont or a different Castlevania character, I would take either Symphony of the Night Mm -hmm. or Rondo of Blood, or I would take Aria of Sorrow, without a doubt. No question. Yeah, if, if we're into season... Eight, nine, ten, and they start having to go to other parts of Castlevania canon. I w- I would welcome it, especially if they take this approach of taking characters and concepts and then telling their own story instead of just recreating. I, th- I think that 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 that's the best idea that this whole series presents. I mean, I think that they present that opportunity. I mean, they have a doorway now to multiple worlds. I mean, like the the whole <laughs> Castlevania canon is open to them now. Um, if if it's true that that corridor takes them wherever they want to go and it gets reopened by Saint Germain, then I'm not sure if I would really appreciate that. Like, oh, here's Simon now. Um, I'm not really sure yeah. if that, that would work for me, but um, I do think that presents the possibility of other elements of the canon coming in logically without it totally just obliterating whatever canon exists in the game, which I guess he doesn't really care about to begin with, but you know what I mean? I I would add, you know, I really like just the speculation you put out there, Michael. If they If they brought a really good resolution at the end of season four and then wanted to keep it going, by just being like, boom, like a generation or two later, here's Alucard and Richter and Maria, like, the, and now we're doing season five and it's a whole new scenario. Like, yeah, I'll miss having Belnades and Belmont, but like, I would totally be in for it. I'd be in for that adventure, man. I bet Richter's got some sass in him, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You seen him in Smash? oh wow maria is adorable as well maria is a great character man i think it's interesting do so do all four of us have a different favorite arc then no No, i think you and i are the same yeah i don't yeah i don't think any i don't think anyone has alucard and the twins as as uh, right that's a good point that's a good point but you know i i appreciate y'all's opinions and where you come from alana i think um, there's a lot of a lot of good to find in Isaac's plot. I think there are times that it is slow, and I also think that his his initial feeling of like, all right, I just need to go get revenge on this one guy who betrayed Dracula, and it's like, why don't you just stick to the mission and kill all humans? Like, why do you <laughs> got to get to Hector first? Uh, <laughs> like, the 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 revenge drive is just kind of like, uh, okay. But it's 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 the messing with his mind as he meets different people that sort of um, throw doubt and other and not just doubt but other ideas into his head and in in doing so it puts it into our head and then I I'm also going to say Michael like yeah Belnades and Belmont are like they're, those fighting scenes are my favorite fighting scenes the whips are the best and the ice magic oh my gosh um, I could I could just like watch her using ice magic to kill people in interesting ways forever yeah even when she's using like ice magic to take down night creatures in like the first or second episode i'm like oh man that's so Mm. cool she's like running across different like sheets of ice to get to him oh it was amazing and and, and he gets put up an ice shield for the judge or saint germain at some point yeah and and they get they get really creative with uh her use of ice and fire and she even casts an electricity spell once to electrocute that bone minotaur thing that she was fighting yeah yeah Uh, uh, and and uh, one thing I think that just hangs over all four plots is is the absence of Dracula because uh, Dracula being gone at the end of season two just uh, that leaves 
Isaac sort of w- without a goal and without an inspiration. It leaves a power void in the among vampire society, mm-hmm. which is what's driving the the sisterhood. It it, it deprives uh, Belnades and Belmont of a goal that was their entire goal for seasons one and two, and it affect Al- it affects Alucard in ways that are very personal because this is his dad, and now he's trapped in his childhood home to a degree, but also gives him the idea of preserving and passing on Dracula's knowledge, which doesn't exactly go the way he intended. So Dracula hangs over all of it, even even if he's he doesn't have a single line of dialogue in season three. And I, I, I just really feel like this is going to... Everything is hurtling towards Dracula's resurrection. I'm glad they didn't resurrect him this season, though. Yes, I think very so. glad. I think it worked really, really well without him. Like it showed everybody that there was a. I mean, there have been games largely without Dracula, um, but it showed everybody like, mm-hmm. oh, how's this going to carry on without Dracula? Are we going to have a main villain? No, we're not. We're just going to throw everything in the melting pot, push people on a chessboard to different directions, and then see what happens. And this is what we got. Yeah, um, death is the final boss of one Castlevania game I mentioned earlier in this episode. Uh, so, so there's a there are Castlevania games that avoid Dracula hanging over everything, but uh, even when Dracula's not in uh, the Netflix Castlevania show, I, I think he he's still a, an important mm. presence in everything. Yeah, I mean, and I think they they introduced that notion smartly in this season too. I mean, even by just like showing him, like this is still an entity that exists on another plane, like so that people aren't going to be like, oh, you resurrect, resurrected the bad guy. Oh. Mm-hmm. I mean, like it um, it won't feel as anime, <laughs> and I mean that yeah. in the best possible way mm-hmm. um, by um, at least acknowledging the possibility. Yeah, I think I think it was the right thing to do to show him, remind us he's there and. I know I probably had a different take than you guys on that. I thought he was sad, but also content to be left alone. Mm-hmm. And But it's also possible that that gesture meant I'm ready to kick some ass and take revenge at the drop of a hat. Uh, who knows? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think regardless, um, if he's pulled in against his will or um, because of his will, um, I think either one would probably piss him off in a different way. So I think that it would probably still work in future seasons. That's a good point. That's a very good point. I, I just, I, I really hope, I imagine at this point, at some point, someone's shown Warren Ellis the old dub of Symphony of the Night. And so you know, it's about <laughs> uh, miserable piles of secrets and all that. And as long as he just never even dares to reference that, I'm going to be okay. Because I feel like that would really ruin the tone of the show. It would certainly, I think, go against what it is he seems to be doing at this point, which is, yeah. you know, making yeah. his own story and not making it a collection. I mean, I, I don't know. I would, I would be amused. <laughs> if he, if he put in just what is a man, but then didn't give the answer, <laughs> well, I'd be okay trolling. with that. <laughs> no, I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, if anything, if they've moved away from that uh, phrase in in recently, like in the in the PSP and PS4 translate uh, version. Of yeah, they, Symphony of the Night. They, they, it's not in there at all. Yeah, they completely redid the old, the old stuff, which is yeah for the best. Um, even right. though it's it's still great meme material, I don't yeah, I don't know I, that it would belong in this show. Yeah, I don't th- I don't think Warren Ellis is going to seek out Castlevania meme material. <laughs> good man, good man. Well, if we're talking about that line, um, and I'm going to steal Mike's line here, we're probably it's probably about time for us to wrap up. Does anybody have any other final thoughts before we uh, move on to housekeeping? I'm really glad that I agreed with a lot of you because I always get nervous that I have <laughs> stupid opinions. 
I liked your opinions, Pat. Thanks, guys. All right. Well, thanks so much for talking to me, guys. I had a great time uh, talking about this series, especially with three people who know way more about Castlevania than I do. Um, I bet I, you know, even as a person who has limited experience with it, I thought that it was, especially this season, was incredibly compellingly written. Um, so, um, in terms of uh, what's coming up, um, so next month uh, we're going to have two episodes on. Mother 3, uh, which I'm super excited to play through all the way for the first time. And I think two of you are also going to be on that show, right? Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we. I haven't even started the game yet, but uh, yeah. but we have plenty of time. Yeah. Um, and also, if you'd like to email us, you can email us at retro at rpgfan.com. You can also comment on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Discord. Uh, we have a Twitch stream every day. Uh, we also have three other excellent podcasts. Uh, we've got Random Encounter, which deals with random topics that are usually pretty current. Um, we have Rhythm Encounter, which is significantly less current because we haven't had an episode of that in a few years, but it's about music and it's still really great to go back and listen to old episodes of. And we also have our partner podcast, Phoenix Edge. Uh, which is hosted on YouTube and deals mostly with current events. Um, you can also review us on iTunes, Google Play, whatever podcast listening venue that you prefer. We'd love feedback. Um, and so let's talk about where we can reach uh, each of us. So we'll start with you, Mike. How can uh, listeners reach you? Right. Um, the easiest way to find me is probably Twitter. I am at The Real Monsoon most of the time, at Evoker for Dogs other times. I am also Monsoon Mike on the RPG Fan Discord server. And Alana. Uh, the best place to reach me is on Twitter. I am at Alana Hakes. Please come find me and follow me on there. And Pat. Yeah, Twitter's probably the best for me as well. I'm at Gameadactyl. It's like pterodactyl, but the word game in front of it or in place of the tarot. And I am usually very quick to reply on Twitter. You can also, if you really want, if you're really into game music, vgmdb.net, which is where you can find information on every soundtrack ever published. Um, and you've I'm, written about all of them, right? I, I've, <laughs> I've, I've, I've written about um, over a thousand, actually. I'm, I yeah, just so all broke them, a thousand yes. recently. <laughs> That's um, awesome, Pat, seriously. Oh, thanks. Um, I'm, I'm Ramza on there. Um, if you ever want to, you know, ask questions about rarity or collectability of a physical soundtrack or you, you you know, you just want to chat it up about whatever. I, I, it's pretty common that people that read RPG Fan reach me that way as well. So um, register an account at VGMDB and hit me up on the forums there if you want. Awesome. Um, and if you'd like to reach me personally, you can email me at ZachW at RPGFan.com. And you can also reach me on uh, Discord at ZachW. And one final plug I want to give. Uh, first of all, we've referenced uh, Alana's uh, Season 3 review of Castlevania, which is amazing. If you haven't read it, you should go check it out. Uh, but we also have a lot of other features. Uh, Pat wrote about the first two seasons for an anime adaptations feature that we ran earlier. Um, and we've been running a lot of reviews um, for anime or other adaptations of RPGs. So if you're interested in that sort of thing and you like this podcast, you should go check them out. Uh, so anyway, thanks again, guys. And thank you for listening, everybody. Good night and good luck.
Hello, and welcome to episode 234 of Retro Encounter, RPG Fans Weekly Top Pot. I'm going to start that again. <laughs> <laughs> top Cow. Top Top Lot. <laughs> Who's a podcast hosted right. by Top Cat? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, why not? Right. Different cartoon cats. <laughs> All right. 